are listening to the Grace of Bel Air Sermon Podcast. Grace exists to help people discover a life of purpose in Jesus Christ through discipleship and serving one another. For additional information, you can visit us online at www.graceofbelair.com. And now, we invite you to enjoy this week's sermon. be uh, in the book of, or the gospel of Matthew, um, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Uh, This is a very powerful passage of scripture that um, is going to really just kind of build off of what we've been talking about. If you're here with us last week, we were um, talking about Pentecost Sunday, how, how much of a monumental day that was in the Bible. And, um, you know, now as we begin to uh, enter into a new series, this is kind of like the introduction of this new series that we'll be starting about Jesus building his church. And uh, and, it really is just going to be an amazing, powerful time uh, with the Lord and and just seeing how Jesus builds his church and how he continues to build his church uh, for for many, many years to come as we have uh, been the ones that have received the benefits of so many before us. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And the title of this message is called Kingdom Builder. And this is really Jesus talking a lot about building his kingdom. He's mentioned this numerous times. And I was reflecting on times where I've been able to participate in helping churches with their building. We understand the church is the people of God, but really we have churches where we would gather together uh, the buildings, and so we would often, uh, in our network of churches, we have like what we call these extreme makeovers, where we would uh, help other churches uh, build uh, or renovate uh, a building, especially if it's new, if it's a, uh, something that maybe another pastor or church, a group of uh, believers have bought, maybe a certain property or something, needs some renovations, and so we would often renovate those things. If you've been a part of the uh, journey of Henderson Road Campus, our other campus, that will be starting up in the fall. Uh, you know, you've been you've been able to participate in some of that as well. Um, and this was this one time I was able to go and 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 be a part of it in Baltimore City. And my job coming was to make sure there was a lady in our church that had made pumpkin chocolate chip cookies. And so my job was to deliver those things without eating them. Amen. And so uh, it was a tough task, but I managed. Uh, and so. Um, so I got there and, and you know, we're, they're doing the job. And, and of course, anytime we get together, we like to eat. And so there's a lot of people there eating food. You know, people eat some of the cookies. There were some left over. So I take them back into my car. I'm driving through the city. And there's one of these guys that are standing on the side of the road uh, at the stoplight. And he basically has a sign up saying help, uh, any help uh, that would be much appreciated. And so I was like, okay, you know, I don't really have any cash, but um, so he walks up to my window, and I'm like, all right, well, I roll down the window. I say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't really, ha- I don't have any cash on me. All I have is my card. And so he, he just kind of like looked at me. He's like, okay. And then I look down, and I see these pumpkin chocolate chip cookies. And I said, actually, I have these fresh-baked pumpkin chocolate chip cookies if you want them. 
And he, like, you know, at the time when he was talking to me, he wasn't looking me in the eye at all. He's kind of looking down. And as soon as I said pumpkin, chocolate chip, cookies, he looks right at me. And he looks at the cookies. He looks at me. He does like a double take. He's like, is this guy being for real? And I go, do you want some? And he goes, yeah, give me them. And then he was, he just, he takes them all. He took all of them. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, as I'm driving away, he doesn't care about any cars anymore. He is just demolishing those fresh baked pumpkin chocolate chip cookies. And the Lord blessed him with that, I guess. I guarantee you he did not wake up that morning thinking that he was going to get that into his possession. But uh, I'm glad he was able to eat them because uh, I was probably over my calorie count for the day on that one. So, um, so he, he, took it off, he took it on upon himself. So praise God. But uh, uh, this morning, as we talk about building the church of Jesus Christ, we come to this chapter in Matthew 16, which is a very monumental chapter uh, in itself, because Jesus came to this earth. He was born in a manger. There's a lot of uh, talk about him, you know, being the Messiah, being the Son of God. And then you see Jesus grow up, and he's, he's starting to talk about this kingdom that he's building, and it's going to be different than everybody else. And the way he's describing it, he's, we're starting to understand it in the Bible, that it's not, a, it's not a kingdom that has boundaries, walls, or jurisdictions, or anything like that, but it's a kingdom that, is, that doesn't have these things. It's, it's all over. And so this is a kingdom that's going to last forever, in other words. And Jesus would talk often about this. And so as we see through this over uh, this chapter, especially at the beginning of this, Jesus is going to tell them about uh, people who will come and distort the truth. And really, they're not building his kingdom. They're actually building their own. They're building, and it, they're, they have their own selfish agendas. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, his his followers, to be on guard, to watch out, and to understand what is truth and what, is, what has been, dist- and what is the difference between something that's being distorted. And so Jesus is going to walk with them through this moment, and we're going to see something monumental happen in this portion of Scripture. And you're going to hear Peter, you know, make this major confession that he is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so this is a monumental moment, but how they got to this point really is going to matter um, because this, just, this doesn't just happen. This was something that was built upon for, for quite a while before Peter makes this confession about Jesus because you got to remember, Jesus has not died on the cross yet and he has not resurrected yet. So even more so, this is monumental in what Peter is saying in this portion of Scripture and so there are going to be two important principles that we're going to pull out of this about those who build his kingdom. And the first one is this, to build trust in him. And so say that with me, build trust. Build trust in him. And this is what it says in verses 13 through 17. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by my flesh, by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so as we look at this region, this is an important region that Matthew's mentioning. It's Caesarea Philippi, and we'll talk a little bit later about the significance of where they are. This is uh, a rather important city uh, in this region of the world. And this is where Jesus decides to have a very important conversation. And then some very important statements are made uh, for good reason, which we'll talk about later. But Jesus, 
at the start of this asks people, uh, or asks his disciples, who do, the, who do you think the Son of Man is? Like, who do you, and the Son of Man is such a, an important phrase to catch, the, the Son of Man, because Jesus would often say this phrase uh, because he knew that there were certain phrases that if he said it, people got the wrong perception of who he is and why he came. So he would not use the phrase Messiah necessarily because they looked at him as this military Messiah. It, that's what they thought of uh, their Messiah to come. They knew that there was a Messiah to be promised that was coming who was going to be like this military figure. And, and so, you know, their expectation of Jesus would be, you're going to overthrow Rome for us and, and then nothing can stop us. We're going to be unstoppable, in other words. And so Jesus would not necessarily throw that word around so easily because he's trying to get them uh, to have the right perception. How many know even today people still have the wrong view about Jesus? There's still a wrong perception. And so Jesus was guarding against that because he wanted people to fully see the real purpose behind his coming. And so he uses the phrase son of man. And we'll see this numerous times in the Old Testament. Right now we're in a book of the New Testament in Matthew. But this is mentioned, the, the phrase Son of Man is mentioned several times in the Old Testament, um, and especially in the book of, I believe, yeah, Ezekiel. You'll see that mentioned numerous times in the book of Ezekiel. But even in the uh, book of Daniel, another Old Testament, a prophet, Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, this guy uh, will mention uh, the phrase Son of Man. And it's from a vision he has, and we'll read it. And I just kind of want you to hear what that version, the Son of Man, is, according to the vision Daniel has. So just listen to this. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, Daniel says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, to get, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never, ever be destroyed. How many know that's talking about Jesus, right? So this son of man phrase is powerful, but he's trying to strategically give them the right perception as to who he is, because they've, a lot of them had gotten the wrong perception. So we find out there are three things about the son of man that's going to be important to know about. First off, the son of man is going to be known as, scripturally speaking, to be a humble servant who forgives sins and his earthly ministry. Now you see that if you remember a story with uh, the lame man that gets let, like carried by four of his friends and they basically get dropped, he, they drop him in, in through a roof because there's such a big crowd. How many of you remember that story? There's such a big crowd. Their friends can't get to Jesus with this man who's lame. He can't walk and they're trying to get to Jesus. So they decide to go up on top of a roof, dig a hole, in the roof, and then lower the man in front of Jesus. And Jesus' first response is rather interesting. He looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. So this is very powerful. And this is where the religious leaders who didn't like Jesus got very upset because they knew exactly what that meant. They tied that state. This is why they get mad. They tied that statement to the Son of Man because they knew Jesus forgiving earthly, uh, forgiving sins in his earthly ministry meant something much greater. And that's why you see them get so frustrated and why they get very angry with that statement and why they start to plan and plot to kill him because they knew what he was saying, that he was declaring something in Daniel 
chapter 7. And then we see Jesus say to them in that moment, which is easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. And we see the man walk. We see him walk and, and be on his way. And Jesus makes that statement in there. He says, the son of man has authority to forgive sins, which is very uh, reassuring. It's very amazing. But for people who didn't like that, that is very alarming to them, what he is saying. So we know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins on earth. He is a humble servant. The Son of Man is a suffering servant. How many know Jesus died on the cross, right? So he suffered. He was resurrected from the dead. He suffered, but it was for the sake of redeeming people. And then we see the Son of Man is the glorious King and Judge who will return to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So people think this. They like, they like Jesus, but they don't like God the Father because God the Father is the judge. Actually, it's not that way. Jesus is the judge. Remember, when you stand before God, Jesus tells us this. Who speaks to you these words? It, basically, there's two different ways it's going to go. It's going to say, Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Or he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. It is not God the Father making that statement. It is actually Jesus making that statement to you. And so it's so critical to know why this son of man phrase is so important because it means all these different things. And so as we move along with this, uh, with this building trust in him, we will see that Jesus will find out some answers from his disciples because they are listening to people. They are trying to make uh, identifications as to who the son of man is. We see this clearly illustrated here. They thought that it could be John the Baptist. Now, this is something that Herod the Tetrarch, the one who put John the Baptist to death, remember that story, he beheads John the Baptist. Um, when he hears about Jesus, Herod does, when he hears about Jesus, Herod thinks John the Baptist came back to life and it's John the Baptist in the flesh, but the body possession is Jesus. So he's thinking that John the Baptist has come back from what has happened. But obviously, we, that's not necessarily the case. Then we see you know, Elijah mentioned. Elijah is mentioned in Malachi chapter 4 because we see in Malachi chapter 4, there's a, there's a prophecy there about Elijah's return. And so people are thinking this is the prophetic moment is that Elijah is coming. He's the son of man. Or there's, there's others, Jeremiah, and then, and then there's others. But it's important to what Jesus is trying to, to tell us is how we view the son of man, how we view Jesus is gonna matter. How we perceive him is gonna truly matter. And so as we walk through this in the, verse, the next set of verses, he asks them a very direct question. And now he's asking the disciples, well, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? How many of you know that's kind of a, be kind of a scary question, right? Remember, Jesus hasn't been crucified. He hasn't resurrected yet. And Jesus in this moment, a guy that you've been following, he says, who do you think I am? He's calling them into account, just like he would call everybody into account. He's calling them in this moment into account. Who do you think I am. And Jesus, and then you hear, you hear Peter's statement. He is, the, he is the Christ. He's Messiah. He's the son of the living God. And the reason why that phrase is said out is so crucial because it's connected to each other. If you look up the phrase Christ or, or, or that phrase Christ that's, that's used or Messiah that's used here, that can often mean uh, in the Old Testament, it can mean kings, it can mean priests, it can mean uh, prophets, that's what the word would be associated with. It meant anointed, in other words. It meant anointed. And so when, when Peter's making this statement, 
Peter then says, you are the Messiah. Then he, he finishes it. You are the son of the living God. Now, this is very important that Peter's making that statement here because in Caesarea Philippi, they're worshiping all, all kinds of gods, especially their history is known for this. They would worship gods like Baal. They would worship, in this, like at this point in time, there's a, there's a god named Pan, and then there's another god that they call Caesar, which is their leader. So there's a lot of worshiping of false gods going on. And so Peter says that statement, you are the Christ, you are the anointed, and you are the son of the living God. So it's connected, is what he's saying. This is all connected because Jesus, or what Peter's realized in this moment, at least, Peter's not always doing everything great all the time, but he gets it right in this moment. And uh, as you see later in this chapter, you read the very same chapter that you have Peter who's making this amazing statement. And then by the end of the chapter, he's getting rebuked by Jesus. And, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, right? It's like, poor guy. Like he's just, like he has a, an amazing moment and then a very low moment where he's literally having a selfish agenda about what Jesus should do with his life and his ministry. And so um, as we look at this, Jesus or Peter is, is realizing that this is an important relationship that Jesus has with God the Father. There's something different about this relationship with God the Father. And so what Peter has come to in this moment, this is where we finally are building it to here, is that Peter has built a trust with Jesus. He's building trust with God, which is so crucial for every single one of us to do. We have to build our trust with God. And what kills that so often is comparison of other people and where they are in their relationship with God. What will kill your building, when you're building trust in God, comparing yourself to other people and where they are at this moment of their life is gonna kill it if you do that. You have to be on your guard against comparison. So I'm gonna give you a, a couple of different examples that you more than likely have clearly heard before in your lifetime about how do you build trust with God. These are not, these statements I make are not going to be something that's like, wow, that's amazing, right? It's just going to be very simplistic. But I want us to understand what are, are there views that you have over these things that are from somewhere where you've compared yourself to another individual. And what you're doing is actually you have a frustrated relationship with God and you're not actually building trust with God, but you're actually more frustrated with your relationship with God. So what do I mean by that? Well, I'll make the first one. So the first part is crucial in building your trust with God is reading the Bible. Read the Bible. Some of you are like, well, yeah, I read my Bible. Now, here's, the, here's what can happen is that for some of us in this room, we can read and read and read and read and we can retain everything. I am not that way. I can, I can read, but sometimes I have to read it a lot slower just to catch what it's being said because I, I'm just not that way. But for some of us in the room, you can read and read and read and read and read, and you're retaining everything you're reading, but that's not me. But see, that's what's, what was so pivotal in my relationship with God is I would hear and see people do that, and I'm like, I'm gonna try that, but then it, I wasn't getting anything out of it. It was like, what am I doing? Like, this is pointless. And then I've, I've, I've done this numerous, numerous things over the years where um, I've done uh, where I've read one chapter of the Bible in the Old Testament, and then I'll read one chapter in the New Testament, which has been amazing because it slowed me down. It's helped me to really dive in to the Bible. And what Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren out in California said this, this, is, this helped me out a lot, 
when it came to reading the Bible. It's not how much of the Bible I read, it's how much I've been, it's been through me. So if we're thinking that you have to read the Bible from front to back, I would encourage that, yes. But at the same time, too, it's not how much of the Bible you read, it's how much it's been through you. Are you letting it speak to you? Or is there a, a philosophy that you're living off of because of what you have seen somebody else do, and you think, I have to do that in order to be like them, when the whole goal is not to be like them, your whole goal is to be like Jesus. And let God get personal with you and speak to you directly. Because God is big, God is massive, yes, but he's very personal to you, and he's got personal things he wants to say to you. But for somebody to say, well, I've got to read a chapter of the Old Testament now and a chapter of the New Testament now because Pastor Bobby's... No, you don't have to do that. You do something that you're getting out of it. I, I've readjusted some of this lately because I felt compelled to do that. I was reading something about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. Um, he was executed by his resistance with Nazi Germany. He was a Christian. And, um, and one of the things he did, and it compelled me to do this, um, one of the things he did was he would read a chapter and sit, sit in that chapter for the whole week. Just sit there and just read that thing over and over and over. And I was like, and I had this desire. I'm like, I want that. I want to be able to just not feel this unrealistic expectation I put on myself to read so much of the Bible just so that I could say I've read this much of the Bible, but to tear off that unrealistic expectation that I've placed on myself and just sit and let the word of God go in and through me always. And just sit there and listen to what the Bible is telling me. And just let it speak to me over and over and over again. And it was, it's been so refreshing, to say the least. And my goal of that was just to be able to rest in that. And not get such in a hurry with reading God's word. Now for somebody who's, who's wondering, like, well, we're, I'm just trying to figure out if the Bible's the real deal. I would encourage you, read the Bible from front to back before you make your assessments. Because it's, 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 it's a tragic thing to do if you're making your assessment off the Bible based off of one book or one chapter. You've got to read the whole thing through. Would you ever do, I don't, you wouldn't do that with any of the books you read, making a whole assessment off of one page, one verse. That's, it's, that's, that wouldn't be smart. You, you understand it from front to back. Then you can make a, a clear assessment, a, a right assessment. And I love it because there's been so many people, like if you've known this guy named Josh McDowell, he, he dedicated his life to proving that the Bible was wrong. And what he did is that he would he raised a lot of money to go and do this. And so he would go. and But then what he had to do is he had to study the Bible front to back. And guess what happened in the middle of studying the Bible front to back? It changed him. He transformed his life. And now what he's doing is he's going around telling people that the Bible's the real deal, that there's something different about this. It's all true. He spent his whole life dedicated to proving it wrong, and he accidentally proved it right. <laughs> and God changed him, and it's continued to change him. And so this is why it's so critical to read God's Word, to understand what is being read to you or what you're reading, to study it, ask questions, research for answers. Don't get in a hurry 
just because you're trying to live up to someone else's expectations or someone else's life and what they're doing. It is their, it is their personal relationship with God. It is not yours. God is maybe speaking to you differently. Maybe God is building trust with, with him and with you differently. Maybe there's a route God is taking that's just different. Now, the next part, again, this isn't going to be mind-boggling or anything, but it is prayer. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, I should pray. Prayer is, a lot of times we say communicating with God, which it is, communicating with God. But here's what I've come to know, is that so many times it's so easy to just unload on God and have no time for God to speak to me. Ever been there? It's like, I just want to, I'm just unloading. <laughs> so here's a practice I've learned that's been so monumental when, I come, when it comes to prayer. Rather than going through my list with God, I, I have to force myself to pause. And I say, God, I have something that I would like to pray about. But first, I'm going to ask you this question. What do you want me to pray about? Is there anything that's not on my agenda today that you want me to talk to you about? Do you want to speak to me about? And it's hard because I've got a million things I want to say right now to God. But just to sit there. And you know what I often found is that God will bring, for example, somebody to my memory that's not a Christian, that's not a believer, and that wasn't on my agenda today. And God says, no, I want you to pray for that individual now. And so I will. Or God will bring up a situation that I'm dealing with. It's a stressor it's a, or there's fear or, or whatever the case may be. And God says, I want you to pray over that. It's not on my agenda today, but I just felt like God was speaking that to me. I felt it in my mind. I felt something in my heart that this is what I need to start by praying about. And just letting God go first. I think it's beautiful when you let God go first. Because trust me, you're going to still say the same agenda to God. I, I mean, I promise you that. You're still going to go through your list. But what, the, what if God has something to add to your list that you've forgotten about or maybe it's taken root in you and you didn't know it was there, but God brings it up again. He says, no, 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 no. Uh, we need to deal with this one before we go to anywhere else. I want you to talk to me about this. Maybe it's confession time. Maybe there's something you need to confess to God that you've just wanted to ignore and God is calling you to that moment just to lay it down. Say, Lord, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Before I go anywhere else, God, do something in me first before I'm asking you to do something for anything else I have on my list. Let God communicate. And let God speak, because he will. He will speak. As you will see in a moment, you see what happens to, to Peter. But it says, the other part is this, to be a part of his church. So the church is us. So you need relationships. You don't just need acquaintances. You need depth in your relationships with people. Because this is crucial. You need to learn to rely on people, but you also need to be relied on. You need people to show you grace so that you can show grace to other people. But what happens is, is we, we, we get burned, something happens, we back off of everybody and we make our assessment, I don't trust people. I just, I can't get close to them because every time I do, something bad happens. 
I just want to tell you, Jesus had the best excuse in the world to not entrust himself to people. He had the best excuse in the world. First of all, he trusted himself to 12 guys. One of them, he already knew that was the betrayer. I mean, think about that. Wrap your mind around that. Like, like good grief. Like, that's just, that's hard to do. 12 people, but you know one of them is going to betray you. Be the reason why you go home on a cross. If anybody had an excuse, it's Jesus. But did you know, Jesus also had three individuals that would see things that the other nine would never see. We see that often in that. Jesus had 12, but Jesus also had three. Jesus, did Jesus really need that? No, he probably could do his own thing. But he was telling us the example that humanity like you and I need. We need to have people close to us. We need to have people in our life that we can trust our life with. And I'm not just talking about certain you know, medical procedures and stuff. Like, yes, that's important. But at the same time, too, to trust us with, to trust them with our weaknesses. To say, hey, I'm struggling. To say, hey, I have, I have this fear right now. Hey, I have this stress right now. I have this worry right now. I have all these. Your relationships need to have depth to them so that you can operate in what God has put in you, but so that people can operate in what God has put in them, and then you can receive something. Because so many times we're carrying burdens by ourselves, and God says in his word that he's never meant for us to carry that burden alone. And you keep carrying that burden alone is not going to make it any better. It's actually going to get worse. It's releasing it. It's learning to let the church be the church. And yes, there may be times that it doesn't go well. Somebody burns you. Guess what? Jesus got burned plenty of times. And so I always tell myself, and I have to remind myself often, when I have that moment where I just say, I don't want to trust anybody anymore, I remind myself of what Jesus did. Over and over and over again, I would say, man, how did Jesus trust these people? Or was he trying to tell me something? That we need each other. It's not me, myself, and I. It's us together. Because if I live a life of me, myself, and I, I'll never, I'll never grow. The burden will never get lighter. It'll get heavier. It'll always remain the same unless I do something different. So it's so critical that we do that. Why do I say that? It's because you're setting yourself up for a revelation from God. God wants to give you revelations. Did you know that? How many of you love a revelation from God? God wants to give you revelations all the time. I, I, I promise you that. And this is what's so so crazy to see that as we read in, in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see this where Peter is mentioned that, uh, or in verse 17, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. Jesus was telling Peter, because of your building of trust in me, in God the Father, something's been revealed. And that's so critical for us to understand is that there are Things that God is building in us, trust in him so that we can receive a new revelation. And it's going to be life-changing. It's going to transform your mind. It's going to transform your heart. It's going to transform the way you act. It's going to do a number of different things. And this is what he says, the second part is build his church. In verse 18 through 20, it says this, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on are bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why? Because of their perception of that word. They weren't ready for that word yet. Jesus mentions that again. 
But here's the play on of words Jesus used. He calls Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. Then he changes it and says, but you are, called, but you are Peter. I love that. God has something to say about who you are. God is going to call things out of you that you didn't even know were there. He's going to call things out of you. That's just who he is. Why? Because he's your creator. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. That's just who he is. He is the creator of all things. And so he knows what's in you that you don't even know is there. And so he tells Peter, Peter's name means stone. And he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter's name is stone. The statement rock, the Greek word is Petra, which means massive rock. So who is, what is Jesus talking about? Upon the confession of Jesus Christ. That's the massive rock. Anytime a church gets away from that confession of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, being the son of the living God, anytime a church gets away from that, you are now tearing down. You're not building the church anymore. And I don't know about you, but I want to be known as somebody who builds the church up and not tears it down. That's who I want to be known for. And so what I mean by the church is not necessarily a building. I mean people. The church is people. That's what Jesus came to show us is that he is building his church. And he says the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, are not going to overcome it. Where Jesus is saying, in that, where Jesus is saying this is very crucial because Caesarea Philippi is a monumental city when it comes to foreign gods, false gods, as we would call them. In this area, there is a cave of water that had a massive temple built near it that Herod the Great, anybody know who Herod the Great is? He was the one that goes and kills all the kids in, in Bethlehem because he's mad. That's Herod. Herod builds this massive temple made out of white marble, beautiful temple, but wicked things were taking place inside this temple. This is, he's, Herod builds this unto Caesar Augustus at the time, and he builds it in dedication to him. And what they would do is witchcraft. It was unbelievable what they would do. And it was their way, and they were okay with it. It was their way of communicating to the underworld. There was what they consider inside this cave, a body of water that was bottomless. And they said that was the ticket to the underworld. And so what they would do is they would use that as a way to communicate with demonic beings. And there, I can get into more detail about what they do, but it was just, it's disgusting, all the things that were taking place in there. And I can just imagine Jesus in this moment being near that and saying, you are Peter, and upon this rock, upon the confession of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and these gates are not going to prevail. Just imagine him saying it right at it. There's nothing that the enemy is going to do to be able to stop it, to be able to, to, to prevent what is coming. There was nothing that the enemy could do. And so it's so crucial to know this, that as we read this, and as I close and have the band come, it's so crucial to know when you build his church, things can flow in you and things will flow out of you. Because I'm here to tell you, the, the world will push, push, push for you to keep pouring out, 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 out. And what it will lead to is, is burnout. It will lead to depletion. It will lead to frustration. And it's so critical that you know where your identity is. I am a child of God. Preaching is not who I am. Preaching is something I do. Whatever job you have, 
That is what you do, but that is not where your identity is put in. Because God forbid, maybe that gets taken away from you. Where are you then? I mean, I, I follow the sports world a lot. And I've seen multi-million dollar athletes make statements similar to this. Where they're done with their sport, they retire or whatever, a team no longer signs them. And they get to that moment and they say, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. Why? Because they placed their identity in something they did. And they've lost their identity in who they are. It's not something you do. It's what you've been created to be. You've been created to be with God, part of the family of God. God has called you. He is you're his son. You're his daughter. I am a child of God. Preaching is something I do. It's not who I am. It's just something I do. It's just a benefit that I get to do. It's just a blessing I get to do. That's it. And it's a plus, and I enjoy that. But at the same time, too, we can get so caught up in running races that this world is, running us to, is wanting us to run, and God never called us to run that. We're trying to keep up with everybody. We're trying to compare our lives to somebody else's and we're running their race. And God says, I never even called you to do that because you're trying to put your identity in something you do rather than who I've created you to be. It's about being because when you be who God has called you to be, what will flow out of you is healing, grace, love, joy. It's gonna flow out of you, but you've gotta go to the source who puts that in you because if you don't, you're going to be running on empty because eventually your cup runs dry. It runs dry and it will keep running dry until you go to the one who fills you. The Bible, Jesus said this. He says, those who hunger for righteousness will be filled. When we hunger for God, we're hungering for righteousness. And he, Jesus promises when you hunger for that, you will be filled. When you treat that as number one priority, I tell students that are going into full-time ministry all the time, I said, here's the number one key factor for you when you go into full-time ministry. Protect your time with God. That never goes. It never goes. That stays. And that could go for anybody. It stays. You never, that is usually the first thing that will go when life gets busy and hectic. It gets crazy. And you, you let that go first. Now, I'm here to tell you, protect that above all else. That is the thing that matters more because it is you being who God has called you to be. You meant to be in his presence. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. There's so much there that God has to pour into you so that you can keep pouring out the love, the joy, the healing. Because Jesus says this. He says, in my name, when you've made that confession, this is why we make, a, when we make it, it's not just a statement. Why do I have to say that Jesus Christ is Lord? Because Jesus calls it massive. He says it's massive. And he says, upon that statement, that is what builds my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail on that massive rock. It's massive statement. And Jesus says, based off of that, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. In other words, you get to, if you imagine a, a prison cell, when a prisoner gets put in the prison cell, what do they do? They lock the gate. There is no escape. And then to let the prisoner out, what do they have to do? They have to unlock the gate. They let loose that individual. So in the same regard, why does Jesus say bind and loose? Jesus is saying we get to bind the enemy's plans. We get to ruin his plans. We get to ruin his plans, what the enemy has for us. 
and what he has for people. So I get to bind up fear. I get to bind up, you know, any, any addiction. I get to bind that up. I get to bind up depression. I get to bind up all these different things because that is not who I am. And I will fight and, and, and keep fighting. And I will have people with me that will carry my arms with me. If I can't fight anymore, they're there with me to pick me back up. This is why it's so critical to have depth in relationships because there will be days where you get tired, you want to quit. And when you fall, you need somebody there to catch. And Jesus used people all the time to do that. He used that all the time. And so for you, it's not just building your trust in him, it's building trust in him and in people. And Jesus didn't entrust himself to everybody, just so you know. So in John, I believe it's John chapter two, Jesus does an amazing miracle. And he trusted himself to people, but it says in that that chapter in John, he says he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. And so, yeah, there are times where you're like, it probably wouldn't be the wise choice to trust that individual. But Jesus still had trust in other individuals. He knew that these would be key people to building his church. And so he, he let them see things that no one else got to see. Let them be a part of something that no one else got to be a part of in that moment in time because of what he was building for all people. And it's so, so powerful. Then he says you can not only bind up the enemy and his plans, but you can also loose, unleash, I like to say, unleash things from heaven where you can pray over somebody and they could get healed. You could pray over somebody, fear disappears. You could pray over somebody and they start to experience salvation through Jesus Christ because you told them about the massive confession if they make it. If they believe that in their heart, they will be saved. You get to unleash the kingdom of heaven upon all of the earth. This is what it says. It's on earth. Jesus made that statement on purpose. It's on earth. It means it's meant not just for me, it's meant for everybody. It's meant for everybody. People who don't look like me, talk like me, think like me, believe, have the same beliefs to me, it doesn't matter. It's for all, everybody. It's for all people. And so out of it can flow healing. It can flow joy. It can flow peace, kindness, and yes, even salvation. You, get, you and I get to be a part of that. And I hope that you get excited today that you get to build this church and to consistently build this church over and over and over again because when you do that you're building trust in him and you're also building his church and what you are doing is you are setting yourself up for more revelations from God so if you're tired today keep going keep moving forward don't quit don't give up on it because maybe just maybe the enemy is trying to stop you from a revelation from God because if anything and he's clever. The Bible says he's, he's crafty. The enemy, if he knew what was on the other, if you knew what was on the other side of what was coming for you, he would do everything in his power to stop you and to keep doing that over and over and over again because he doesn't want you to receive the new revelation because it's life-giving. Jesus said that. He says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life, the life more abundantly. That's the difference that he wants to give us. So I can bind up the enemy's plans but I can also unleash new things all over the world. People I interact with, no matter what it looks like, God can use me and my story. He can use my, my joy, joyful moments, and he can even use my pain to help people connect to Jesus. 
That's the joy you and I get to be a part of. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to have the prayer teams come in just a moment. We'll have a, the worship team's going to lead us to sing this song a couple of times through. But if you're here today and you would like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we encourage you to, to make your way forward to these prayer teams just to let them know, say, hey, I want to commit my life to Jesus today. They're going to walk with you and pray with you in this moment. They're going to give you some, some guidance in, into how to just do that. I think it's important. I think it's critical that you do that. But I also know that there are other needs out there that maybe you just need to share a burden with that you've been carrying and it's exhausting you because you are refusing to share it. God's never meant for you to live that, through that burden. He's never meant for you to carry that burden alone. He's there. He's willing to help you. But he's also using people to speak things over you. This is why I tell people all the time, Hearing people pray over you and what they exactly are saying is so powerful and so key. Because why? Jesus just said it. He's unleashing something. Unleashing something into your heart. But you have to let it happen. You have to be willing to let it happen. He will unleash something new in your heart if you allow it to be spoken over your life. Just like Peter spoke, or just like Jesus spoke to Peter, we can have people speak into us and what is what God has for us. This morning, I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you as you leave today. Uh, for those that need to leave, you feel free to, but we just want to pray over you this morning and ask the Lord to be with you and that you would continue to build trust in Him and that you will continue to build His church. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is to build your kingdom. Lord, you are building your kingdom all over the world. Lord, you're building in the hearts of people, God, that you... You have a kingdom, Lord, that doesn't have a boundary, doesn't have a wall, it doesn't have a jurisdiction, it doesn't have any of that. It's a kingdom that will last forever. And Lord, we thank you, God, that you've shown us this. Lord, we thank you for the confession and faith that we can have in Jesus Christ. Lord, what a, a massive rock that you said that was. Lord, I pray today that as we walk out of here, God, that we would be living proof of a loving God to those around us. God, that we would bind up any of the enemy's plans that he has for ourselves, for our kids, for our families, for our work environments. Lord, we bind those up in Jesus' name. And Lord, we loosen in heaven what you desire to be, un to be unleashed upon your people. Lord, love, joy, healing. Lord, just all these different things that you desire to give people. I pray that we would be walking representations of that everywhere we go. Lord, be with people as they go today. Protect them, keep them safe. Lord, bring them back next week. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon. Greet each other as you go, and we hope to see you all next week.